Hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Magazine podcast in partnership with Transit Matters. I'm your host, Josh Fairchild. I'm a board member at Transit Matters. Uh, I'm your co-host, Jim Aloisi, also a board member with Transit Matters. Today we're joined by Tony Dutzik. He's a senior policy analyst with the Frontier Group. So I guess, Tony, first, if you could give us just a little bit of background of what the Frontier Group is, um, and then today we're going to talk about the recent report, so you could begin talking about that even, too. Sure, great. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, Jim. Um, so Frontier Group is a nonprofit uh, public policy organization. Our mission is to provide information and ideas to help Americans build a healthier, uh, more democratic, and uh, cleaner society. Uh, I work here in Boston, but we're a national organization, and uh, much of our work is done uh, in coordination with uh, nonprofit organizations and other partners on a variety of issues. Uh, my uh, area of, of interest is mostly on issues related to transportation, energy, and, uh, and the climate. Thanks, Tony. Now, did you know, uh, let me just begin, um, I want you to know we're going to be talking about transit and tax policy today. We've got with us not just two transit geeks, but you've got two tax lawyers. Um, people may not know that before I was involved in transportation, I was chief legal counsel at the Revenue Department. So we won't bore people with tax law, but the conversation is going to discuss the intersection of tax policy and sustainable mobility. Yes, and uh, that's you know a, a typical trajectory for folks to move from tax law into uh, transportation <laughs> advocacy and uh, and expertise. So. So tell us about you, uh, Frontier Group, um, I think working with Transit Center, and mm -hmm. I believe Josh actually was helping you on this a little bit, um, issued a report recently. Uh, tell us about that report and why it's important for people in who are listening to this podcast to understand its implications. Sure. For the, so the report was called Who Pays for Parking? And it's actually the second report that we've done along with Transit Center looking at um, federal tax policy with relation to commuter tax benefits. Um, so essentially, uh, the, the, the long and the short of it is that uh, the federal government, when you, uh, when you pay your income taxes, uh, you pay your income taxes on your income and also on some fringe benefits that you receive. However, when it comes to uh, parking that is provided to you by your employer, either that they provide in a lot that they lease or that is on their site or that they provide for you um, via a voucher, um, you can receive that income tax-free. Um, that's a thing of value, and it's especially a thing of value in a city like Boston where parking prices can be, um, can be rather high. And you can receive that up until the equivalent of about $255 a month. The consequence of that, though, is that when, um, when you're not paying taxes on that income, that is, in essence, a subsidy that encourages you to encourages people to drive to workplaces in cities like Boston, um, where uh, you know they tend to be congested. Uh, and in fact, when we subsidize people to to drive to work, uh, we do that. You know, oftentimes the result of that is that we're subsidizing them to drive in precisely the places and at precisely the times that experience the most congestion. And all of us dislike congestion on the roads. Mm -hmm. um, so the sum total of that policy, which we figured uh, estimated in a report three years ago called subsidizing congestion, was that the federal government and state governments essentially lose about $7.3 billion of revenue each year due to this tax break. 
And at the same time, we're putting about 820,000 more cars on the road uh, every morning and every evening um, because we exempt uh, the value of that commuter parking from um, from taxation, from income taxes, and and from state taxes and payroll taxes. So the the reason that people need to be concerned about this is because when we think about in a city like Boston or in many of our cities, when we think about the problems that you know get the most ink and that draw the most concern from people in our transportation networks, the thing that people inevitably come back to is congestion. Uh, mm-hmm. You know the, the 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 number of folks who were stuck on I ninety three coming into the city, or who are trying to just you know do the things that they want to do in their daily lives. And here we have a policy which is not only putting more cars on the road at precisely the times that we don't want them, but is actually spending our tax money to do it. Um, so what is important, I think, for folks to understand is that. Um, there are many policies like this that operate in the background uh, at the federal level and at the state level um, that make it harder for our cities to um, you know, provide good transportation options to address the kinds of challenges that we see on our streets and on our roads every single day um, and that tend to get very little scrutiny and very little attention. So this is just one of those policies that operates in the background, perhaps provides a subsidy that many people don't even know that they get, uh, but that actually has a really significant impact on how we get around in our cities. I think it'll be important for some people to try to figure out like how we got here in, in tax policy. And wh- one of the reasons this happens is because the age-old uh, issue of litigation with the IRS is what is income? That's, that's the ultimate question. And there was a point where the IRS was beginning to say, oh, all these people are getting getting income in the form of parking and they started to make make overtures that they were going to begin taxing taxing that parking as a form of salary basically a like kind salary almost and congress didn't like that no they, right. they didn't like it at all so in the in the 1970s actually and it wasn't just parking but a but a series of other fringe benefits that the IRS and looking around around the country saw that uh, employees were getting more of their compensation in the form of these ta- of these fringe benefits that weren't being taxed, and so the IRS began to look at opportunities to start uh, incorporating those fringe benefits as taxable income. And parking, commuter parking, as as you said, was one of those things that they looked at. Um, Congress reacted to that in a pretty negative way. They imposed a series of moratoria. Uh, in the late 70s and early 80s that prevented the IRS from going further down that route. Uh, and then in the early 1980s, they created really the beginnings of the policy that we have today where it was codified into, into federal law that um, there was this um, qualified transportation fringe benefit uh, that was uh, um, exempt from calculations of taxable income and then employers could provide that to, to the employees. It has to be provided by the employer. Correct. So the way this works, and correct me if I'm wrong, so mm-hmm. people really understand, a lawyer making $400,000 a year parking under an international place gets a, basically doesn't pay for a parking spot that probably costs on the market $35 a day. Doesn't pay for that. And there's a, there's a commuter tax benefit where that lawyer making $400,000 a year is basically getting that tax exemption. And Americans, all of us who pay taxes, are subsidizing that to the tune of nearly $8 billion a year. That's right. And it pops up in a, in a couple of different contexts. So that's the most extreme, extreme it's example. A, it's a of way it. to show, because I think there's a social equity component to this as well. Yeah, there very much is. So if you look at, uh, if you look at who receives the benefits and who benefits the most, 
from the policy. The folks who receive the most value from this are folks who are parking in downtown areas where parking is very expensive. Um, one of the things that I think is actually not really well understood by the public to the extent that this gets talked about at all is that um, you know when you talk about most of the transportation policies and subsidies that we have that encourage automobile dependence, you know tend to tend to subsidize suburban, you know either you know trips from the suburbs into the city or or yeah, transportation infrastructure in suburban areas. But if you work in an office park out by 495, you're basically not receiving any of this subsidy mm -hmm. because the parking that is provided to you is so abundant that it's essentially worthless. Now, that's another problem that we could talk about in a different podcast, but in this case, what is really driving the amount of subsidy that you receive is the value of the parking re you receive. The second thing that drives it is what your tax bracket is, so what your marginal tax rate is. So again, if you're a 400 if you're a lawyer making $400,000, a year, you're going to be getting a greater amount of dollar benefit from this tax break than the secretary making $40,000 a year, even if you receive parking in exactly the same way. Because if you're in the highest tax bracket, you're getting the tax benefit is almost 40 cents per dollar of that benefit to you. Correct. I think one of the, one of the other things that can be confusing about these fringe benefits is that m most people, a lot of people, their employers may not necessarily pay for the benefit but they will allow the employee to set aside that portion of their income on a monthly basis to pay for the parking. Or many people are more familiar maybe with getting a transit pass. And you're basically taking a portion of your income, putting it into that account for the transit pass. It's no longer counted as your income up to the limit of $255 a month at the federal level. Same thing on the parking side. So whether the employer gives you extra money to pay for that or the employer allows you to set aside the money you have, that's a fringe benefit that, that only a certain class of employers allows to their employees. So there's, this, there's an implication that it's a certain, um, you have to have a certain uh, level of income already to be in sort of the pot of employers that provide these kind of fringe benefits to qualify. And then when you get to that point, it's the upper, the people in the upper tax brackets that are getting the most benefit from it. Right. And, and I think the other, the other thing about the parking subsidy that is, that is often misunderstood is that even when, you know, when we talk about the, the, the lawyer in international place, if you, if you drive into that facility, there's probably a fare gate. And there's, you know, a, if you're a member of the general public, you might pay to park there. The benefit comes to you even if that's not the case. Even if you are, you're parking in a free facility that is owned by your employer or rented by your employer or leased, um, but if it is in a place where parking would otherwise have value. So if you, you know, if that lawyer, for example, is parking in a leased parking space and a lot out back, and you wouldn't do this in an international place, but you might do this somewhere else in the city of Boston, um, then they're also receiving, even if there's not a dollar that changes hands between the, employ the employee, the employer, and the parking facility on a day-to-day -day basis, you're still receiving a tax benefit from that. And we don't have to necessarily go too far down the rabbit hole on the more suburban locations, but basically when, when the, where, where the parking is more abundant, it's because city codes have required more parking to be built, which means less building can be built, which means the rents are higher to compensate for the land that is not, does not have offices or retail on it. So your rent in that case includes the parking, uh, which is paid for by the employer. And the employer does not necessarily put that on their, um, in their, they don't actually account for that as an expenditure of the parking necessarily. They just are accounting for rent. Right, and even where they do uh, account for it as an expenditure, what the IRS uses to 
determine the value of the parking is based on its market value. So if how much would you have to pay as a member of the general public if you were going to pay there, or what is the equivalent of that that's being provided for free? And if you know you have acres and acres of parking around in a in a suburban office park campus, then you know that that doesn't have a market value. So yeah, another question here is you know to to what how do we how do we value parking? How do we um, how do how do we value the benefits that people are receiving? But you know, from the IRS's me- methodology, it's all based on fair market value. And even if the employer is paying something for it, if you as a consumer could go and get it for free somewhere else, which in most of these places you can, um, it's it's not going to be taxed. So in Boston, we have a EPA imposed cap on the number of parking spots in in downtown Boston. So how do, how does this policy affect? I mean, obviously, we're not increasing the number of spots because the demand is going up. Uh, there's only so many spots to go around. How, how does this affect you know, Boston in that case? Well, I think it, it affects Boston in the sense that, um, in, in the sense that you know, again, we're, the, the impact of the policy is beyond simply downtown Boston, but there are many other places in and around the urban core where parking does have value and where there is a tax benefit that, it, that accrues to that. Um, you know, the other thing that it may be doing is to also help drive up the cost of parking because if you're receiving, um, you know, if you're receiving the benefit, um, you know, it, it increases the demand. The last thing that I would just say is that, um, and we raised this issue in the report, but we really don't have, one of the things that I think is really challenging about this is that there is so little data and so little analysis analysis that has been done on the implications of these of these benefits. But one of the questions that we raised in the report is, does the $255 a month cap, is that actually a real thing that is enforced by the IRS? And to the extent that you're receiving parking in a voucher from your employer, then you know your employer is not going to go and give you something that is, because if it's above $255 a month, mm-hmm. you're supposed to pay taxes on the value of the parking that is in excess of $255 a month. And we had a devil of a time figuring out whether there is any enforcement of that limit um, for circumstances where the employer is actually paying for the parking. I'm going to give you a guess. Pocket. Very little is <laughs> happening. So, so what we know is that there's federal tax policy that goes back to the 1970s that bears no relationship to the 21st century, but that encourages really bad mobility behavior. And is inherently socially inequitable. We also know this is, that federal law has a similar but unequal treatment for transit users. Let's talk about that a little bit and how the federal law is actually antagonistic to itself. Sure. So starting in uh, pretty much about as soon as the federal government created and codified the parking benefit, uh, there began to be very legitimate complaints from people who were taking public transportation to work that this was inequitable. So if I am a public transportation user and I'm using $70 of my own income that I've paid taxes on already to buy a transit pass, and yet my neighbor at the next cubicle is getting $70 worth of parking tax-free, that's not exactly fair. So what the federal government did in the early 1990s was to create a parallel transit benefit that is similar to the parking benefit. So um, the value of that has gone up and down over time, uh, but it, it currently it is capped out at the same $255 a month at the federal level, and there's state tax issues that we can talk about some other time. But, um, but it essentially enables you to receive 
a transit pass or um, to set aside money for a transit pass or, or transit services tax-free in the same way that the parking benefit does. The problem with the transit benefit is that it doesn't reach nearly as many people as the parking benefit does on a national basis. Um, as you mentioned, Josh, it's historically been the case that the kinds of employers that offer the transit benefit tend to be larger employers. They tend to be employers that uh, you know, not only you know, have, have more employees, but also tend to have better off employees. So they can, they can offer this as a benefit, uh, as a way to be competitive with other, uh, with other companies that are looking to hire the same people. And so in our report from 2014, we estimated that um, the number of people who receive the transit benefit is just vastly lower than the number of people who receive the parking benefit. And it's as a result of that that um, you know, the, net the net effect of both of these policies combined is to put more cars on the road. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that the states have the option of adopting laws that would keep have at least some transit parity with vehicles and also provide a smaller tax benefit for cyclists. And that, we haven't done that in Massachusetts. And I just heard this morning the bill, which has been filed for the past three years, continues to be stuck in the House Ways and Means Committee. That's right. So most states follow federal definitions of income. And in states that do that, it's relatively easy to, um, you know, take changes that are made in the, in the tax benefits at the federal level and impose them, you know, make them, make them the same at the state level. Massachusetts doesn't do that in this particular case. So a few years ago, uh, the federal government created a permanent parity between parking benefits and transit benefits at now 255 bucks a month. But it had previously been the case that the top transit benefit was significantly lower. And I forget the number now. It's in the 100s. Yes. But, um, but the state of Massachusetts has not yet made that leap to full parity for your state taxes. Uh, and the other thing that, as I understand it, Massachusetts hasn't done is it hasn't implemented a small bicycling commuting benefit that was adopted at the federal level a number of years ago and hasn't yet made its way to Massachusetts for, for state tax purposes. So, Correct. you know, it's beyond – so in one sense, it's it's inequitable. In another sense, it's also just incredibly confusing that you have, you know, the same behaviors are being treated differently in relation to your income at the federal and state level. Well, I've, it's been a matter of some frustration. Transit Matters, t for mass others for the past several years have been advocating for and promoting legislation that would provide that parity for, tra for Massachusetts transit users and also cyclists. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, we just cannot get the legislature to adopt the legislation to make this happen. So it's currently stuck in House Ways and Means. If you're listening and you care about this issue, that's where it is. Um, but it goes to my earlier point. There is an embedded social inequity in the commuter tax benefit for people who drive. And so if we're going to have a, a socially equitable, sustainable mobility system, at the very least, we can think about creating these kinds of parities and offer people who decide to use lower carbon modes the opportunity to benefit as well. Right. Now, I think that's true. And the other thing that, um, that a number of cities around the country have done is in recognition of this fact that the number of people who have access to the transit benefit is lower generally than those who have access to the parking benefit, and that the people who tend not to have access to the transit benefit are the people who are precisely those who need it the most. Yes. Uh, so folks who are 
lower income, middle income people, people may be working in places where transit service is uh, a little more challenging. Um, what some cities and, and the Bay Area and California have done is to pass ordinances requiring employers above a certain number of employees to actually offer transit benefits to their to their workers as a way both to kind of counteract the negative Im- impacts of the parking benefit and to expand people's access to and incentives to use low carbon sustainable modes of transportation. And I, will, I will say the one the one way that Massachusetts is a little bit progressive on this front is that they do offer an after-tax uh, deduction for transit benefit, which basically means that if your employer doesn't provide the, the, the fringe benefit, you can still deduct uh, a certain amount um, from, from your income after the fact on your tax return. Unfortunately, it doesn't allow you to deduct the full value of the transit pass. It only gives you something like 75% of it uh, if you look at the whole year of expenditure. Um, and, it, and it does not give you enough to really cover like the commuter train, you know, the commuter rail. Um, so it's nowhere near uh, equitable with the benefits we offer to uh, employees who get fringe benefits from their employers, but it is a start. But I think the big lesson here is that we're basically paying on both sides, and even at the state level, we're sort of like fighting to get parity for something that still amounts to us paying on both sides to try to get to try to encourage uh, people to both drive and use transit. What are some of the uh, things that you've you've seen and you've written about in your report about how we can reform the system starting at the federal level? Sure. Well, at the federal level, the, the two things that we really looked at were, first of all, how do you fix the parking benefit and the, and, and the parking subsidy? And the answer to that is actually a lot more, as a couple of tax lawyers would understand, um, that the answer to that is actually a lot more complicated than, um, than meets the eye. Because what you then have to do is you have to create a system by which employers can actually calculate and understand the value of the parking that they're providing to their employees. Um, that's not necessarily an easy or a straightforward thing to do, and the IRS guidance on it is not particularly helpful. What we've seen in looking at other countries around the world and how they deal with this problem is that there are a number of models that countries like Australia have used that create just the standardized formula for how employers can make that calculation so that they actually can report it as income. And in a number of other countries, uh, Austria is one of these, Ireland, uh, there are a couple of others, um, there's just simply a requirement that if you offer parking in an urban area, uh, and they define urban areas in different ways, um, that you then have to account for that in taxable income or pay a surtax in order to compensate for that for that benefit that you've received. So, um, so it's a challenging thing, I think. It's challenging politically, but it's also challenging just in terms of implementation to fix the parking benefit. But there are some models from around the world of how people have done that. The other part of the equation is to... Um, is to fix the transit benefit. And the transit benefit you know, has this fundamental problem of not enough people getting it. Um, and cities have begun to take some action on that. But there's also a, a bigger issue there, which is that that benefit is f- fundamentally inaccessible for people who are uh, contractors, for people who work in the gig economy, mm-hmm. uh, or for people who are self-employed. And you know, as we all know, those are the kind of employment op- um, arrangements that are becoming much more common every day. So I think, Josh, you know, to your point about the Massachusetts um, tax break for the T, finding a way for those for those people who can't necessarily take advantage of uh, the transit benefit through their employer to find a way for them to access it 
as a deduction or in some other way through the federal tax code is, is one way to address that problem. The second problem is that the transit benefit was created more than 20 years ago. And you and I, we all know that transportation has changed a lot in the last 20 years. We have a variety of new transportation services out now that didn't exist then um, and prospect of more of that to come. Mm -hmm. So we suggest in the report that we give a strong look at the federal level to rethinking which of those services should actually be eligible for tax-free treatment. One really good example of that is bike sharing. Um, so, you know, for a lot of folks in in the Boston area and elsewhere, bike sharing is an essential first and last mile connection to transit, and it's a transit mode in and of itself. But under federal law, bike sharing counts neither for the tr- toward the transit benefit, nor does it count toward the bicycling benefit that mm-hmm. you mentioned, Jim. So finding a way to sort out the transit benefit so that it meets the 21st century opportunities that we have is another really important thing to do at the federal level. I would just note that, um, you know, personally, I'm not that optimistic that we are going to fix the parking <laughs> the parking benefit anytime soon. Um, but I do think that one of the reasons why it's important that we did this report and one of the reasons that I'm grateful that you've had us on today to talk about it is because to the extent that we are aware of some of these hidden subsidies that exist in the tax code and elsewhere for driving, the more that it incentivizes legislators, cities, uh, folks at the state level to begin to think about how we can come up with creative ways to undo some of the harm that they create. And I think that's what we've been trying to get, we, advocates and others, this legislature to do to sort of pay attention to this issue. If you think about this, if large companies, banks, financial institutions, law firms are buying up basically, what they're doing is they're buying up chunks of expensive parking underground in many of the places in Boston, right? Mm -hmm. Offering them basically as, as a part of the compensation for their employees. They're driving the price to the, to the average person up because there's fewer parking spaces in that garage. So there is a synergy, and it's in the benefit of the owner of that in terms of revenue to have this in place because it drives up their prices, right? right. It's a supply and demand issue. Mm-hmm. You talk about Australia. Are there other best practices globally that we can learn from? Well, one of the other best practices that we talked about in the report is actually something that can occur at the city level. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the one of the messages of this report is that to the extent that the federal benefits won't really be addressed anytime soon, uh, that it's really incumbent on cities to find creative solutions. So, uh, there are a number of cities. The example that we cite in the report is in Nottingham, England, uh, that have created parking levies uh, that, you know, essentially recapture some of the tax revenue that is lost to the public through the federal tax benefit um, and instead recapture some of that tax tax revenue and invest it in transportation options locally. So in Nottingham, what they've done is that they have taxed for employers who offer a certain number of parking spaces. There's an annual fee that's assessed on those parking spaces. And then that fee, the revenue from that fee is reinvested in public transportation and in other kinds of transportation options. So they have managed to help uh, you know, expand their tram system uh, to provide uh, transit transportation benefits to employees and to do all sorts of things that have enabled them to do what I think people in Boston and people in other parts of the Commonwealth want to do, which is to grow the number of people businesses and prosperity in our urban centers and to do it without increasing congestion. That's really 
the holy grail here. And I think there are examples from both around the United States and around the world of cities that have, have taken proactive approaches to do that. Of course, that. here the legislature we began have to act to empower municipalities to have the ability to do that. Recent report um, issued by the, the state senate and, and the Bar Foundation, which surveyed people around the state, suggested that there was very high incidence of support for having the legislature do that, to, mm -hmm. to enact a law that would delegate or empower cities and towns to impose their own fees or taxes for specific transportation needs. Mm -hmm. And some of us, myself in particular, have been talking about potentially imposing a carbon fee on non-residential parking that you would then dedicate to transit. So mm -hmm. that's exactly right. the Very kind of similar. fix that would be, we'd be talking about. That's right. By the way, uh, so people know, if, if they want to read your report, just give them the, the what's the site that they go to? How can they read and download this report? Sure. You can go to www.frontiergroup, all one word, dot org. Uh, and there you can find both this report, which again is called Who Pays for Parking, as well as a number of other reports that we've done over the years on various aspects of transportation policy uh, that have a lot of relevance, we think, to, uh, to life in Boston and, and in the Commonwealth more broadly. So, um, you know, we're... Uh, always encourage folks to, to go and make use of the content and the research that we've pr produced. I, I would just give one one final thought to people who are who are um, diving into this world of tax policy thinking, uh, would just be that with, with tax reform being something that's being discussed, whether or not it happens, it does seem that one of the things that is agreed to is that there's going to be some reduction in the tax rates. And one thing that we constantly find is whenever we talk about reforming the tax code, we're talking about all these people might call them loopholes, all these ways that you can uh, exclude income, basically, is, is or, or call it tax expenditure on the federal government side. Um, so these tax deductions are worth a lot to people. But if tax rates go down, then they're worth less because you're getting less from the deduction. Uh, if things like the, the standard deduction that people get uh, goes up, then you may not even use some of these. So if there is some very simple forms of tax reform, or even if we get lower rates, which people may, may be opposed to or not, it does potentially open the door to playing with some of these loopholes or tax deductions that are causing a lot of problems um, that have to be overcome at the local level. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that to, to a degree. Um, you know, certainly with, with rates, that changes the economic benefits of the various choices that people make. Um, however, one of the things that is devilishly difficult about the parking benefit is that it's not a deduction. Uh, in fact, it's an exclusion of income at the very beginning of the whole taxation process. So not only does that mean that it's more difficult to root out in tax reform, but it's also something that makes it very difficult even to understand the degree to which people benefit from it. So um, you know, one of the recommendations that we've made in the report is uh, that it really, when Congress began down this road in the 1970s, they did not begin to think about the implications of this tax change on transportation policy and on transportation in our cities. We looked at the congressional record. We could find no evidence that it was ever even discussed when these uh, policies were initially being considered. Now, 40 years down the road, we have better understanding of what the implications are, and it's time for us to really do the kind of deep study of their impacts on transportation that we should have done when we made these policies in the, in the first place. Um, so I think it's really important that we have better data, and it's also really important that um, organizations like ours, but also ideally the federal government, um, really do the kind of work that is needed to, to 
understand the implications and, and, the, um, and the impacts on our transportation system. Well, knowledge is power, and I hope that this conversation for listeners gives them a little more understanding of this particularly arcane <laughs> aspect of the tax law. And I hope, frankly, the people who use transit and who, and who cycle will consider um, how they're being shortchanged in Massachusetts and, and, and act on that if they so choose to take advantage of what is available to them. Yes, indeed. That's, that's very true. And for, for all of those of you who have, who have managed to sit through this conversation about tax law and transportation, <laughs> um, you know, definitely encourage you to, to look at the full report, um, which you know, has a lot, of, uh, a lot of interesting data and a lot of interesting examples from around the world of, of places that have begun to take on this challenge. Well, Tony, thank you for joining us. And thank to the you. listeners, thank you for joining us for another uh, episode of the podcast. Catch you later. Wonderful. Wonderful.